Welcome to yet another episode of Shortcast Over Coffee. My guest today is neurobiologist Dr. Vidita Vaidya, who is a professor at the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research, Mumbai. She received her PhD from Yale University in 1998 and did postdoctoral research at the Karolinska Institute and Oxford University before joining TIFR in 2000. Professor Vaidya is an elected fellow of the Indian National Science Academy, the Indian Academy of Sciences and the National Academy of Sciences India. She has received the National Bioscientist Award in 2012, Shanti Swarup Bhatnagar Award in 2015, the JC Bose Fellowship in 2021, a Nature Award for Excellence in Mentoring in 2019 and the Infosys Prize in Life Sciences in 2022. In this episode I talked to Vidita on her moving back to India to set up her lab at TIFR early childhood trauma and its effect on people and the use of psychedelics let's get into the episode hi vidita welcome to the podcast hi thank you for having me on the podcast great um so i was researching about you for this episode and one thing that fascinated me was your grandfather was a freedom fighter mm-hmm. and then your parents were doctors so i want to take a generation back mm-hmm. and um you should tell us the story about how your parents became doctors because it's a completely different field uh, compared to what what your grandpa grandfather was involved in yeah so my dad so it's actually quite interesting my great grandfather that is my grandfather's father was um, actually one of the first few medical doctors in his village okay and this is this is a uh, saurashtra so in, it's in gujarat and uh, so there's been a tradition in the family for quite a few decades and centuries of medicine because my that's one of the reasons why the last name is vaidya because vaidya means doctor and originally as a family our surname was vyas but it got converted to vaidya somewhere down the generations because people became ayurvedic doctors so they were ayurvedic doctors and this is now great great grandfather etc my dad's side but um, my gra- great grandfather was actually an md so he was trained in clinical medicine in allopathic modern medicine but was always interested also in ayurveda my grandfather of course was a generation that was deeply passionate about uh, the freedom movement and worked with gandhi ji went to jail with gandhi ji so you know and my grandmother also was um, i remember very early on in childhood her telling me stories about these things called the prabhat fairies which used to be when the women would go out as part of the nonviolent struggle and the quit india movement and satyagraha there was also the prabhat fairies where the women would actually go and walk around the streets collectively to to you know bring together the spirit of the movement and they all wore khadi they made their own khadi they made their own clothes so it was a very that generation was quite interesting that way and then my parents of course both were um, my dad is an md phd so is my mother both deeply interested in medicine that is actually how they met they met in medical school but so it, it skipped a generation but it came back again and then there has always been in my family a deep interest in uh, my dad's side of the family certainly very much a deep interest in both um, writing poetry the arts so the written written expression so really the really really novelists and writers in that side of the family but also medicine and science so there is both 
a little bit of both in that side of the family and my mom's side of the family my great my grandfather was uh, was actually uh, you know started one of uh, one of the big firms in india so that side is a more commercial slash business associated venture but yeah both my parents are doctors and uh, met in at gs medical in mumbai okay so i guess it was a very obvious choice for you with respect was, to what it was an obvious not an obvious choice because i think everyone would have expected me to do medicine and when i was doing my you know i was always interested in biology but i also knew early on i was not as interested in being a medical doctor as i was in uh, in research and in exploring why things happen and so it was not always an instinctive choice so in my 12th standard i remember some aunts and uncles telling me that i was making a very bad choice to do a bsc in life science and biochemistry instead of choosing to do medicine because most people would not give up a medical seat to go do a bachelor's but i i took that choice because i was always interested in the in the why and the mechanisms of of biology less in the application of it and more in the discovery process so yes it was while it certainly i can always i jokingly say i'm in the family business because everybody's you know in the family is interested in biology broadly not having a medical degree was a little bit of a radical thing to sort of choose to do at that time especially in that era now it would not be considered a big deal to choose not to do medicine but in those days if you were a science student you did either medicine or you did engineering it was almost a given so choosing to say no to doing a medical degree was a rare thing at that time now not so much yeah i think uh, you know medicine or engineering is still pretty much the case though i see that things are changing yeah. with with gen x being interested in so many other things i think sport has also picked up mm-hmm. um, you know it's a pretty lucrative career as lucrative as a career um so you go on to do an undergrad undergrad degree in zavius and then choose to do a phd uh, in the us uh, yale university how was that experience like and we are talking about what year so 92 is when i started my phd i finished in 97 so um you know i knew i wanted to do i wanted to work on the brain but i had taken one basic course in neuroscience so i was really not uh, i certainly didn't consider myself well prepared when i showed up for graduate school because i literally done like an undergrad bachelor's in life science biochemistry one course in neuroscience which fascinated me but certainly not enough to feel, feel like i had a you know solid backing and i i had barely been in the lab i was a utter novice in the lab when i showed up but it was a big change because in that era unlike today when people come to the us where they have a it's a much more of a global world today with a lot more in terms of media and the access that people have you you know you're not really a stranger to many other countries if you choose to find out information everything is available to you my starting of my phd was before the internet really showed up in any major way so that era it was still there was a culture shock to moving to a new country to getting adjusted to new ways of being to you know understanding what it meant to do coursework in a completely different system it took a little bit of time for me to find my feet but um, i will look back at those 5 years of my phd as some of the most rich academic years of my uh, you know academic training i thoroughly enjoyed my 5 years of graduate school i was very lucky to have outstanding mentors and i think that's that sometimes that's luck of the draw in that if you're lucky you find the right people to work with and for me my entire scientific journey has been about the people i've been lucky to interact with work with collaborate with even now i would say that the thing i cherish the most about 
uh, doing the kind of work I do is actually the people I get to work with. So, I mean, that, that's a huge part of what I enjoy the most about my science. Yeah, I mean, we are talking at a time when uh, the gap between India and the West, especially in, in research and just STEM education is sort of diminish, diminishing day by day, you know, uh, things are picking up in India. But back in those days, you do a PhD at a prestigious institute like Yale, and then you go on to do a couple more postdocs uh, in, in really reputed institutes. What was the rationale behind moving back to India? I mean, it was not the trend at the time. Uh, now a lot more people are moving back. Um, and what was your thought process at the time? I just wanted to go home. That's all it was. It was as simple an answer as that. I mean, I think uh, I'm most at home in India. That's my space. And I, I also recognize that now one can be a global citizen and one can feel connected to one's own country with great ease wherever one is. But India was always my home, Bombay. I should actually say Bombay. I'm a Bombay kid. I grew up there. This is where my heart beats happiest. And um, I love the city and I wanted to go back. And I knew it was going to be challenging, but I signed on for those challenges, right? Because I, I knew I wanted to do science in, in India. <clears throat> so that wasn't... I mean, I knew going in that it would not be the easiest, right? That it would have been an easier path to perhaps stay on here and do my, you know, become a faculty member in the US in a more established uh, environment. But I also knew that, you know, there is an excitement about getting to set up something. And there was that element that I definitely had. I would certainly not consider myself unique. There were many other people who fit exactly this Pretty much everyone I know at TIFR has trained somewhere or the other in the world and come back. So there's nothing special about what I was doing in that sense. And going home, I mean, it was such a simple answer. Like, why did I choose this? It's because I wanted to go home. That was it. But, but never was, you know, what am I going to do once I go back home uh, a, a thought? Uh, or you were just really confident that you will? I just was not looking at any other alternatives. Like, I'm going home. I knew I was going home. We'll figure I it out later. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't look over my shoulder and second guess that choice. I, I think that's a good thing because if you second guess that choice, you see all the things that are going to be challenging and difficult much more than if you forget about looking over your shoulder. And I my general approach has not been to second guess a choice once I've taken it. Because once I've made the choice, I don't know what the alternative would have been like. I didn't choose that, right? So if I've made this choice, then I have to make the most of it, make the best of it. And I signed on for it. So I signed on for some of the some of the challenges that come with setting up a lab in an environment that doesn't yet have vertebrate neuroscience in a very active sense. And, uh, you know, once you do that, I think you take away the worry of what you don't have and you look at it more as an opportunity of, okay, I have what is available to me and how do I make the most? There is a huge element of jugad that came in that initial period. I was doing a lot of things that were, you know, out of the box, but I also saw a lot of the advantages that I had. I had a lot of freedom. TIFR gave me a ton of scientific freedom and gave me enough funding. It's just that I had to mobilize that funding and use it the appropriate way to start sort of make things happen. But uh, yeah, I guess the uh, since I wasn't looking over my shoulder and questioning that decision too much, I, I don't think I... I worried too much about how long this would take. I was like, I'm, I have to do this. So this is what I've signed up for. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. People usually recommend to sleep over uh, decisions and, you know, probably give things a second thought. But in this case, um, I think India benefited greatly from, from your 
you know, decision. I would say the reverse. I think I benefited much more. I mean, India is lucky to have multiple people who are all over the world who are attached to that wonderful country. But I have benefited way more from returning home than I can say the reverse way is at all. Because I, I mean, I think it's a different world today. You know, one can be globally connected in a manner which it was harder to do in the early 90s. And um, I think now one can imagine being a global citizen where one contributes to whatever one wants to from wherever one is in whichever location. And I think that is much more easier today. And I think we will eventually move to a world where people view themselves in that sense with less of a national boundary blocking them from contributing wherever they are. Uh, but I, for me, it was like, I need to be home. This is where I am happiest. And I, I can always travel abroad whenever I need to. I can always travel for conferences and for meetings. And, you know, yeah. So, yeah, I would say I got a lot out of it. I don't know about the reverse way, but I certainly got a lot out of it. Yeah, yeah. You you summed it up uh, beautifully. Uh, and I just wanted to double click on, 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 on the times that you, um, you know, got back to India. How difficult was setting up a lab? And um, I, I did watch a couple couple of videos and read articles about how difficult it was to convince uh, officials, uh, yeah, you know, to, to was, get to, to, to get, you know, like sanctions and whatnot. Uh, yeah, any any the, interesting anecdotes? Yeah, yeah it was, have you seen Vagle Ki Dunya? I guess you're not the right generation to have watched it, but it was a great show about bureaucracy. It In some ways, I think it's slightly inspired by Yes Minister. So, you know, the yes minister element of some of the bureaucracy, well, <clears throat> the British left, but they left behind quite a few bureaucratic uh, loopholes for us to handle and red tape for us to handle. So while I can say that at TIFR, I had plenty of uh, financial and uh, financial support as well as scientific freedom. When you're setting up something new in a space where the ecosystem is not yet used to having that kind of stuff, um, it's a, it's an interesting process. I mean, I had to import viruses. I had to import mouse lines. Some of them were mutant mouse lines. You have to go to the forestry department. You have to get permission for why is this much money being spent on some, you know, mice for Pete's sake. Aren't there plenty running around all of Mumbai? So there are, it makes for very interesting conversations. You have to explain what genetic modifications are. But uh, laughingly, I tell my students, I will have super interesting memoirs to write because, you know, they, they it led for lots of interesting conversations with people. But people are generally quite willing to help if you if you're willing to try. Uh, sometimes it takes a heck of a long longer than you wanted to. I certainly had a few experiences where trying to move red tape took me several years more than it should have taken. But uh, yeah, I mean, I. I had to, like I said, I had to do jugad to solve the problem then. If I had a, a problem I had to solve, I had to solve the problem. I could not wait for the red tape to get its act together to solve the problem. I had to find a way to solve the problem. And so I was looking at creative strategies of how to get the primary thing that I needed to do done, right? So, and I had a lot of support while I was doing that. I had a very wonderful team of people I was working with. I had wonderful young graduate students, postdocs, technicians. So it, it was a team of us. I mean, it wasn't just me doing this by myself. Yes, I was leading my group, but I had a lot of other people who were putting their shoulder to the, you know, whatever grind and getting it done along with me. So, yeah, it was, I was, I will laughingly say it will make for supremely interesting memoirs because uh, there are quite a few of them are interesting stories. I guess you're going to keep it uh, to your book. 
I at some point I will write them but yeah hopefully hopefully someone else will read it other than just me but yeah I mean it just you know the, there are challenges when you are I was the second neurobiologist on my campus the second of the vertebrate neurobiologists had you know at the campus so to set up an animal house an animal facility to have a to hire veterinarians, to get permissions for things, to just import stuff that people were not standardly importing. There were also sanctions at that point because, uh, you know, TIFR falls under the Department of Atomic Energy. So we also had sanctions uh, because of uh, nuclear testing in India. So there were issues with even importing a simple uh, centrifuge, which was not an ultra centrifuge or a complex centrifuge, but even importing a centrifuge might sometimes raise an issue because the institute gets flagged as one of the the things that has there's a sanction again so it was challenging and then you also discovered many ways around the problem now this is now this now feels old hat it's smooth much smoother relatively there are different challenges but you know uh, i think if i had been here and i had been running a lab in the us i would have had a different set of challenges i think any young pi uh, setting up a lab will say that it's not easy in the first five years. It's just that the nature of challenges are different. Yeah, you know, one I, of the big advantages was the ease of funding. At a place like TIFR, one one could really say that one was well supported. So that was a ease that sometimes other PIs here on tenure track don't feel. Yeah, uh, and I think you know talking about uh, solutions for problems like red tape. I mean, you just have to find your way out, right? Rather than waiting for it to solve itself yeah. Um, yeah i think i think that's where it was critical to not be looking over my shoulder constantly and expecting things to be similar to what i had at karolinska or oxford or yale because i think if i had done a cut copy paste and expected exactly that sort of i would have then had a much harder time here i was like okay i know this is not going to be like this i'm going to have to make it work for me so the if I, I I think that's one of the reasons I took the approach to not look over my shoulder constantly because I think the comparison would have been harder and that would have made it challenging to say I want it to be exactly this way. It's not going to be exactly this way. It is going to be different. That's a that's a that's a great attitude to have. Um, so for someone who wants to take up, uh, you know, the research position or or become a professor, do they have to, you know, love writing grants uh I, i'm asking this question specifically because you touched on that pi aspect right um you know people dread writing grants and yeah. how did you enjoy the process and do you still enjoy it i actually write like writing grants i'm going to sound like a anomaly but no i like write, uh, writing grants because in some sense this is the chance you get to dream right you say in principle, you're pitching an idea to an audience saying, hey, I'm excited about this. I want to actually ask this question and this is why I want to ask it and this is the way I want to ask it. And you're expecting people to fund your idea. Hopefully you get funded. But till you get funded, it is your chance to have a pie in the sky dream of why you want to ask something and why somebody should trust you to ask it. So grant writing has never been something I have uh, disliked. But I'm in an ecosystem where grants get funded still more easily than they do in very mature ecosystems where funding rates are extremely low. So in the US, you need so much preliminary data sometimes and you need so much proof to run, um, you know, to be able to actually get funded because it's a much more um, mature ecosystem in terms of the number of people who do that kind of work. You're competing with a very, very large cohort. In India, in neuroscience in particular, it's still a small community. Everyone, even though the country is so large, the number of neuroscientists in the country is not 
not commensurate to the size of India, right? So it's still a young ecosystem. It's still one in which people know each other. And if you pitch a reasonably decent idea well enough, you write a competitive grant, then your chances of getting funded are actually pretty decent. So it's not it. So that's one of the pluses in the Indian ecosystem currently, because it's not saturated in some sense. It's still one that is on the growth curve, right? It's going to grow. It's going to continue to grow. And it is going to, it's bound to get bigger. Um, and then when it gets much bigger, then it gets really, really hard to get a grant. But I was a young uh, PI. I wrote four grants. I thought, okay, I should expect, I'll be very lucky if 50% of them get funded. So I wrote four grants in my first year of, uh, of running my lab and all four got funded. And that's when I realized, wow, that's an advantage of the Indian ecosystem. If you write a good grant and you write it well, then your chances of getting funding are pretty decent. Whereas the same grant here, I would be competing against a much larger pool with a chance that I might not even make it into a fundable score. So that's one of the advantages. And one of the disadvantages is that you will not have 10 neighbors who know exactly what you're doing and, you know, be able to share resources as easily and get off the ground as easily. It will be a bit more challenging. But so, yeah, you give up something, you get something, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So um, just just to briefly touch on uh, grants and, and what you do uh, in your research, is it usually government grants or is there a lot of uh, private uh, private academia partnership as well so currently it's still largely government so the government of india independent of who has been the ruling party independent of the dispensation at the center has always had a positive policy towards science so i think stem in general in the country has been supported for multiple decades independent of who has been in power and i think that's really good it's reflective in the fact that we have an isro if you look at the early pictures of what happened when ISRO was initially starting. And you see their original cosmology flights or initial studies on cosmic rays and then initial balloon flights used to happen out of India. You will see how much jugad there was. It was truly an incredible amount of jugad. And where they are today is a whole different story. And that's reflective of consistent central support and the government has supported it. And I think that's in many ways how it should be, that the public should take... Um, a thrust on education, healthcare. These are fundamental domains in which the government needs to be. You cannot outsource that entirely to private players. I think we need much more private contribution. It hasn't happened as much in India. Uh, there's an attempt big time with NRF as well as with other ideas that the government is currently rolling out where uh, there will be an attempt to pull in private players. How successful that will be, we will have to see as it rolls out. I have been largely a beneficiary of government-funded support, but I also had the Wellcome Trust uh, Senior Research Fellowship early on in my career. I could not have gotten off the ground without that. Now, Wellcome Trust is was, at that point in time, it was not even a partnership with the government of India. It was Wellcome Trust in the UK that I got the funding from, and that I will be eternally grateful for because supporting a young PI setting up a lab in India and this is a UK-based charity. It just tells you the importance of the global elements of support as well. And um, then I had an NIH uh, Fogarty Collaboration Award, which was absolutely valuable as well. So those two early grants were very useful. But a large body of my grants have come from the Department of Biotechnology, the Department of Science and Technology. And my largest support comes from DAE, from TIFR, which is my intramural support from within the institution itself, which 
supports all of the people who work with me as well as supports the research. Now, more recently, in the last few years, there has been private uh, support. And I am immensely grateful to the Padmavati Venkateshwara Foundation. It's a really phenomenal initiative where they rolled out a competitive grant application. I got it three years back. And, you know, the Ramakrishna Paramhans Award has been transformational for our science in the last three years because it's been great funding, but it's also been wonderful feedback from their advisory board, which has in many ways shaped some of the ways in which we've thought about our science. So I actually think that to see partnerships of that nature will be wonderful. I mean, this is a philanthropic effort set forward by Dr. Sudha and Dr. Nageshwara Rao, they're actually donating all of their private wealth to science. And it's remarkable to see, uh, you know, a doctor couple in their, now in their late 70s, early 80s, doing this to, uh, you know, to see this sort of philanthropy emerge in India is wonderful. And I hope they are sort of a clarion call to many other people to think about philanthropy for basic science in India as well. Yeah, it's it's actually great to see. I think we as as a country did not have a lot of uh, history with respect to philanthropy but it's so nice to see like kiran mazumdar shah you know even nikhil kamath uh, signing the signing yeah. the giving pledge and i think you you touched on a great point that that is not discussed as much is that you know regardless of what party is governing at the center you know there is still a good push to stem education and research and i think it's not being spoken about as as much that's as it's critical should. i think and that's needed for a country like india which has great aspirations you need to have a sustained effort and that sustained effort has to be independent of who's in power because we can't have a breakdown of that otherwise we lose on what we have already built and so I always hope that whoever is at the center, independent of that, we need a strong science technology policy that we keep going independent of the fluctuations of political changes, right? So that that stays sustained, because I think that's vital for the country going forward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you research in uh, in a lot of different areas, but, but I would like to move this conversation to um, to something specific, something specific like childhood trauma. Um, it's it's being discussed uh, quite a bit recently, but how do you think childhood trauma affects um, a child's mental health um, during childhood and also after uh, the person grows up? Yeah, so um, I'm particularly interested in early adversity and adversity is, of course, and stress is itself a a precipitating and an exacerbating factor for a lot of mental health diseases, but also for other non-communicable diseases, including irritable bowel syndrome, including a variety of other cardiovascular dysfunction. And the major challenges of for currently for humanity are non-communicable diseases. In many ways, infectious diseases have had a fair bit of progress, right? If you look over the last 100 years and you look at our capacity as a biomedical science community to contribute to the eradication of communicable diseases, many, many major communicable diseases have been tackled. We also saw the challenges that emerge when you have a new virus like COVID that tells you, but to see the remarkable ability with which vaccines were able to roll out in such a short period of time also gives you a sense of the extent of progress that has happened over the last several decades. So I think largely when it comes to communicable diseases, we do have a reasonable a uh, reasonable command. TB still remains TB. Malaria still remain major challenges and for the global south in particular. So it is, it's not, I don't want to walk away with people thinking that communicable diseases are resolved. They're not. 
But relative to 100 years ago, we do have a far better handle on communicable diseases. Non-communicable diseases, on the other hand, are going to contribute to the majority of disease burden. And one significant component of that is mental health disorders. And that number is high and that is burgeoning. And we are talking about 20% of the population. And then 8 billion, you can start beginning to imagine what those numbers look like. We have a large large burden there and it's responsible for a substantial amount of morbidity and also a substantial economic burden on societies so i think there's no question that while we want to focus research on finding new ways of treating these disorders we also have to look at why do we have such an emerging crisis and is there something that we can do in terms of prevention and one of the things that we know that is a common risk for factor for pretty much most psychiatric disorders is early life stress. It shows up as a common risk factor for substance abuse, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder. So it is common, doesn't matter which bin you are treating the disease in, independent of the disease modality eventually for a mental health disorder, early life stress is a common risk factor. So that tells us that what we do in that first decade and a half of a child's life has large long-term consequences on what will emerge in the decades later in terms of risk for mental health disease. We know this now, obviously, from epidemiological studies, psychological work, but also from a substantial amount of neuroscience effort where people have attempted to understand why early trauma leaves such long-lasting marks. I mean, it has... Trauma itself leaves marks, but adult stress does not have as much of the long-lasting consequences as early stress does. And early stress can really leave um, scars, in a sense, for the entire lifespan, increasing risk for a variety of disorders. So tackling it is something that's important. It's important from a public health perspective. It's important from a human perspective as humanity when we look at our own Next generation, this is something we should be all thinking about. It's also important from a research perspective to understand why this happens. What can we do if we have to intervene? When do we have to intervene? How do we have to intervene? So my work is focused on using rodent models, rats and mice mainly. Um, they're mammals with nervous systems that are miniaturized in that they're small, but they have many similarities to other mammals, including us. And they also show long-term consequences of early stress. And trying to understand what happens at a molecular and cellular level, but also what happens to circuits and eventually behavior of animals is what we are interested in. Quite recently, extensively with the Padmavati Venkateshwara Foundation grant, we have been looking at whether early stress predisposes animals to hastened aging. And we find that animals age faster, show significantly hastened um, neurodegenerative changes. And so you actually show long-term consequences almost a year and a half later you can see the consequences of that early trauma so we're interested in asking we have such a long window when do we intervene how do we intervene can we prevent some of this from happening uh, so that's that's sort of one of the active areas of focus in the lab currently yeah i mean it just seems to me like it's such a huge price to pay for something that happens in in the childhood right um you know but but as a parent, uh, what would you what would you say that they do to to prevent something like this? Uh, what are probably the top five um, things that that causes uh, childhood trauma, and how can parent 
also not sort of wrap the child in a cotton wool and let let kids be themselves but at right. the same time prevent something really bad like this happening I mean, this is this is not my area of expertise i'm not a psychologist or even a psychiatrist trained in this i can tell you a little bit about so this would be more of a general statement i'm making but uh, i think when we are talking about early adversity in the clinical setting it is mental physical abuse emotional abuse sexual abuse these are the sort of events that are considered major adverse ch childhood experiences divorce um, parental loss um, you know poverty itself it can be a substantial early adverse experience now Events in life, sometimes one has control over, sometimes one does not have control over. Events can happen, right? But what you do have some degree of control over is your ability to respond. And that is something that a parent can empower their child to respond as best they can to the circumstances that they have been dealt with. We know that uh, social structures can sometimes buffer against poverty. Poverty is a big big factor in early life that can be a major adversity to children and yet this is we also know many people have come from immensely adverse circumstances and done incredibly well in their life and where Elon Musk Elon Musk is an example yeah plenty of people who have had substantial adversity and surmounted it right and so I mean there are many such examples that we also have of resilience so in a sense I guess for a parent the only simple advice is that Every child needs somebody who believes in them, who truly and completely believes in them and their unfettered pot potential and loves them unconditionally. I mean, I think that these are the two things that you can do as a huge gift to your child, which is to first believe in, in their dreams and genuinely support them rather than tearing down their aspirations and dreams. And sometimes those dreams may seem unrealistic to you early, but support them, right? Give them the belief that they can achieve it. And then I would say unconditional love. It's a profound learning for any human being to be able to unconditionally love another human being. So as parenthood gives us that opportunity in a sense to be able to put someone completely first. So if one has been given that opportunity, one should grab it. Um, and I think not putting undue weight of expectations on a child would be the other thing I would say to any parent, which is you have had your life Every unfulfilled dream of yours or every unfulfilled aspiration of yours is not meant to be passed down to the next generation as a burden for them. Um, rather celebrate where they are at rather than what you want them to get to constantly, right? So if you're constantly looking over their shoulder and planning their life ahead for them, you're not enjoying the moment that sits right there with you. So I would say those would be the simplest pieces of advice. They're not rocket science at all. They're really straightforward, but there are hardest things to do. They're amongst the hardest things to do, to be unconditionally capable of loving another human being, to genuinely support their aspirations and dreams and not to put an undue burden of your own aspirations on them. If you pull those three off, I think largely the rest of it you will be able to handle because those are the hard ones. The rest of it is make sure that they are well fed, that they are given nutrition, they're given sleep, they're given support, you know, all of those things which are the ABCDs that you have to do. But if you work from those first principles of doing those first three things right, then the rest of it comes as a consequence of. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you you just uh, put that number out, the 20% uh, that, that does suffer from some form of mental illness. And, and we are talking at a time when companies like Neuralink are trying to rewire the brain. Um, 
with with ai machine learning and and all this advancement in technology can we rewire or reverse childhood trauma and how far have we gotten in that aspect so i mean the good news is that the brain is a remarkably plastic stu- structure so that's one of the pieces of good news so it's not as though your trauma history is going to necessarily define every single thing that emerges in your life and so i don't want people to walk away with a deterministic sense that if there has been trauma there is a guaranteed sense that that individual in adulthood will be susceptible to you know will automatically develop mental health disorder not at all it's a risk factor it's a risk factor it's not a guarantee at all but absolutely we do know that there are ways in which you can buffer consequences of early trauma there are a variety of interventions they could be lifestyle interventions environmental interventions they could be exercise it could be pharmacological interventions depending on the severity of the trauma and the way it's manifesting there are multiple ways in which people can tackle uh, emerging mental health risk right um in terms of with ai and machine learning i think while those tools are immensely powerful sometimes the preventive first principles approach is a good one because i think you do not want to turn necessarily to technology as your first solution for preventive work i think certainly down the road when you're de- dealing with palliative slash curative right now we are really dealing with handling symptoms we still don't have a complete way of understanding how to tackle the primary symptomatology and handle the disease because we do better at treating the symptoms than we do at curing the disease and that is generally true of all medicine as it currently exists which is we do better at symptom management we don't do great at curative right so which is why there is such a fundamental importance of preventive and that is the large body where public health slash society at large can play a role and yet you won't always be able to prevent i mean there is a combination of genetics and environment that are going to overlay on each other and then life circumstances that determine whether it triggers a mental health crisis for someone in which case i would say that there are good treatments and absolutely there should be no stigma from approaching and obtaining the right treatments as and when required because there are treatments i think different societies have a differential degree of stigma about mental health disease burden india still for example remains still fairly traditional on not wanting to accept the large percentage of people that have a variety of mental health diseases and that that stigma needs to go nobody seems to have an issue about saying i have diabetes i mean india has become the diabetes capital in many ways and it's problematic that we have we have such a big metabolic syndrome crisis but people will declare that they are taking metformin or insulin without a problem but the same degree of comfort with being able to declare that i need an anxiolytic or an antidepressant or an antipsychotic you will see families hesitate to open up that possibility so that stigma needs to go because there is good treatment and things need to be tackled but yeah i i worry about instantaneously thinking about solutions that are um you know i mean i i'm right now not convinced that ai and machine learning will provide an immediate um answer i think we have first principles things that we need to do from a public health perspective mm-hmm. and i don't think we should give a, a free pass to our governments our governments have to invest in primary education and primary healthcare education and healthcare are two things that you need government for you cannot take away that and outsource that in its entirety that has to still remain a primary obligation of all taxpayers which is what we should hold our governments accountable to 
Yeah, so looks like AI and machine learning, uh, it's going to take a while before which they are going to come to this domain and and really make their mark. Uh, How much has the use of psychedelics uh, been in in this field and has it helped uh, tackle depression and mental health issues to, to some degree? So psychedelics have been traditionally used in indigenous practices for centuries. I mean, the oldest reported usage is something like 11,000-ish years back. That's kind of the expected numbers that people are, you know, speculating would be the earliest reports of this being used in traditional indigenous practices. Um, It's been used by shamans as a healing art as well. And so people, certainly Amazonian forest tribes have used this as a way for shamanic-based healing. In India, there have been psychoactive plants that have been used for centuries, again, in as a component of traditional Indian medicine and in Ayurveda. Traditional Chinese and indigenous Chinese practices also use herbal approaches or formulations as a way to treat diseases. So people have attempted to use psychoactive plants for centuries, right? Uh, In a sense, modern medicine didn't really pay attention to this till the last 100 years or so. And then we had a deep interest that showed up in the 50s and 60s when LSD was synthesized and there was work that was done with uh, synthetic psychedelics. But then soon after that, there was a ban. There was an absolute shutdown because of the drug associated abuse and the risks that are associated with many of these molecules. Some of these molecules may not have the identical risks to molecules like cocaine and heroin, but they come with their own inherent risks. There has now over the last 15 years been a reopening of interest in some of these molecules, partly driven by the fact that antidepressants, the pharmacological antidepressants that are used, 30% of patients don't respond to any available antidepressants. So that's one third of a population of patients with major depression that do not receive appropriate treatment because there is nothing that they respond to well. So there is a crying need for better quality pharmacological agents. And there has been a reopening of interest in psychedelics as anxiolytics and as potential antidepressants and also for treatment of substance abuse. Because of the circuits that they work on, they they don't appear to be as addictive as other drugs, but they have very interesting potent effects on the brain. So I think there's a reopening of interest. There have been substantial clinical trials done, but like with anything, one has to proceed cautiously, which is, you know, the desire for like this... um, silver bullet approach or something that was going to give you a solution to everything always runs the risk of disappointment because nothing is a magic pill that fixes everything. And these molecules, while having very potent effects on mood, also evoke potent hallucinations. So they come with their complexities and one has to be cautious as one sort of tackles and proceeds with them. We in our lab have been extensively looking at how serotonergic psychedelics influence circuits in the brain using rats and mice, in particular looking at signaling pathways and bioenergetics to understand how those are influenced by these molecules. But I think the jury is still out. I think you will see a lot more happening in this decade and many things will enter the clinic. They are already in the clinic. But I think it's important to do it in a steady manner with a cautious approach because these molecules, while being potent and certainly well worth studying well, also are come it's a dual-edged sword so you have one has to be a little bit careful as one proceeds yeah uh, i know you touched briefly upon um, uh, like the history of uh, psychedelics you know 
11,000 years and, and, and whatnot. But but specifically uh, to India, uh, what has been some of your, um, some of the things that you'd read about the early use of psychedelics? Ashwagandha comes to mind. Yeah, so Ashwagandha is not a psychedelic. Ashwagandha is considered to be a nootropic agent, which is an anxiolytic. It is used as a rasayana in Indian traditional medicine to treat anxiety and depression. So it has been suggested to be used for those things. And uh, it's very interesting. Our work with Vidanya shows very potent neuroprotective uh, effects. And so it, it is a very interesting plant with very interesting molecules within it, many of which have very interesting effects. So absolutely, Vidanya is an interesting molecule. But uh, what we've been working on is we've been looking at structures that within Indian traditional medicine, uh, mo molecules that have structural similarities to serotonergic psychedelics. So we're looking at indole alkaloids and isoquinoline alkaloids, which whose structure looks similar to psilocybin or looks similar to LSD-related molecules, just to see if those molecules happen to work similar to what is seen with uh, serotonergic psychedelics. In India, psychedelics have not been used that much in traditional medicine. So it's interesting that we don't have that many classical serotonergic psychedelics in the literature. But there are many molecules that have structural similarities. And that's the ones that we are going after to some extent. And um, yeah, preliminary evidence certainly suggests very exciting and interesting things there to follow. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to what what that that brings out. Um, I want to take you back to, say, the 1960s and 70s when, like you said, you know, LSD uh, is, is, is becoming popular. And there's a lot of media... Uh, I would say publications and and things that you know this is bad or this is like associated with um, a lot of social chaos and whatnot. And then you interestingly mentioned how LSD is not uh, potentially addictive. So what actually happened? Why are these associated with yeah. addiction? So it's interesting because I mean they're just because they're not classically addictive in terms of, you know, hijacking the pathway reward pathway, that doesn't mean that they are not potentially going to get abused. They may still be abused, right? And so you had uh, in that window, the availability of a variety of drugs that showed up on the street in the 60s. You have to also remember that some of these molecules, and there are interesting molecules in that sense, some of these molecules, especially molecules like MDMA, um, evoke feelings of collective humanity and pro-social like behavior, which is one of the reasons why there were such strong possible war protests associated with the consumption of these molecules. So it's interesting. In that sense, it is interesting. So remember, this is also overlapping with the Vietnam War and major pushback from the youth largely. And, you know, the hate Ashbury comes to mind from that period of time. But in that window, you are pushing back against the war machine. And the industrial war machine is a major component of our current societies today. You can't deny that. Um, it's not very surprising that they banned these molecules. I think that the regulation is needed. There's no question about it. I have no doubt that regulating the usage of these molecules is absolutely vital. They are very, very potent. And one needs to treat them with the due respect. It's remarkable how indigenous cultures manage that. And we are doing a much worse job. Right? I mean, modern society has done a worse job of managing uh, its relationship with these molecules. In that sense, if you say, what is the number one drug that causes harm to humanity? It's actually alcohol. 
singular harm to humanity in terms of either harm to yourself or harm to others, the biggest cause will be alcohol. Nicotine is in, in that list along with it. But alcohol is up right up there. And yet that's not banned because we've legally sanctioned it, right? I mean, so it's a legally sanctioned molecule. So it's legally completely okay to consume it. It's about how we as society choose to cause something, call something legal versus call something illegal. In, it is interesting. I think these molecules deserve profound respect. I think they need legislation and they need regulation. But I don't think we should ever get to a point where we ban research. That I think is unhealthy because that prevents us from understanding these molecules and how they work. And I think unfortunately, when the ban came on LSD and some of the similar molecules at that point in time, one of the unfortunate consequences of that was that at the same time, all research also got stopped or slowed down. And when you do that, you lose the possibility of, you know, potentially tweaking these molecules. Wouldn't it be great if you could get the antidepressant effects, but not necessarily the kind of effects that produce very strong hallucinations? It would be interesting. And if that is even possible, that's not something we can really look at currently, right? So that doesn't become a available option because you ban research. So yeah, I'm not so surprised that there was a ban because I think uh, there was a period in which there was loose usage and very rampant usage. It also coincidentally timed with war protests, etc. So that becomes tricky as a consequence. Governments want to control their population. I mean, that's just the reality. All governments like a manageable population and certainly under the influence, it wasn't a very manageable population. So that, that opens interesting points from a cultural anthropology slash historical perspective. But um, I, I would like to end that discussion by saying that I think regulation is essential. Respect for these molecules is essential. But one should always leave room for exploring these as from a research perspective so that we can tweak them and utilize them better. Yeah, yeah. It's important that you touched on uh, nicotine and alcohol. I think over the years, uh, you know, especially since the 80s, the usage of nicotine has gone down. And I see something similar happening with alcohol uh, because, you know, there's, there's an increased amount of awareness that no amount of alcohol is good for you or any even the the slightest I mean, it bit of highly depends on which which uh, place you're talking about right different cultures different societies different times you also have, when you have big corporate interests pushing things you're always going to have a marketing push plus uh, you know the problem is you don't want a categorical ban but regulation and being able to watch for the health consequences is important right uh, so for people who consume these, uh, I'm just going to use the word loosely, sure. drugs, um, is there a responsible use of MDMA? Is there a responsible use of LSD? Oh, boy. I am it's not a very a tricky topic. Yeah, but... very tricky to... I'm not a fan of the idea of loose usage at all. Right? I Actually, what I find so fascinating about these molecules is that these molecules... Uh, give you access to altered states of consciousness. But we also know that there are, if if in principle your mind can go to an altered state of consciousness under the influence of a molecule, may also be able to get it to it without the influence of the molecule. So we know that those underlying states of consciousness exist in the nervous system as well. I mean, people can hallucinate without a drug. That also actually happens. Unfortunately, usually when that happens, it's a psychotic event. So I would not... Uh, you know, indiscriminate usage is something I would guard against, partly because these molecules are highly potent and can really reorganize nervous systems quite substantially. I think that the approach should be 
especially for therapeutic usage under controlled conditions, very low dose, under the supervision of a you know trained psychotherapist or a psychiatrist who is experienced in understanding the use and the management of these compounds. I think that is a better way to go. I think people underestimate the potency of these molecules and what it does to the brain. And they really are potent molecules. So I would treat anything that has that kind of potency with profound respect. Yeah, I think uh, it'll be interesting uh, just just for my own curiosity to research on you know you know any historical uh, anecdote where you know this kind of drugs were given to a patient or someone, and uh, it just went awry. Yeah, I mean, they do. There are examples of things that have gone all right, especially because one of the things that some of these uh, molecules cause, especially the serotonergic psychedelics, is that they predispose you to a hallucinatory state. And if there is a genetic predisposition either for uh, mania or for psychosis or schizophrenia, then they can trigger a full-fledged potential initiation of a psychotic break. So that becomes a concern. And that's something that uh, is a contraindication for the usage when people are giving this in a clinical setting. So of course, a clinical psychiatrist would be a much better person to comment on this. But having studied this in rats and mice and seeing how potent these molecules are and what they do to the brain, I would say that this should certainly not be something where there's indiscriminate usage. Yeah, so I would, I mean, you know, recreational use is not what these molecules are meant for in my mind. I imagine them as very potent and certainly well worth the respect that any such potent molecule requires. And I would say that they will end, end up in the clinic because they could have many beneficial clinical effects. But yeah, I, I would say that I would guard against that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think you summed it up pretty perfectly. And um uh... Vidita, I would like to say that India has benefited. Otherwise, they wouldn't have awarded Shanti Swaru Bhatnagar Prize or Infosys Prize. So I think you're definitely an asset, not just to India, but but the scientific community in general. Like you said, you know, you would like yourself to be uh, defined as a, as a global citizen. Um, I think uh, we will need more sessions uh, to cover more areas of your research and and just neuroscience in general. But it was it was a pleasure talking to you and and thank it's you so much for chatting. sharing. Lovely chatting with you and all the thought-provoking questions. Some of them I will continue to ruminate about. I don't know if I gave you all the most appropriate answers because I was just thinking on the fly, but this was wonderful having this chat with you as well.